Okay, open up your Bibles to Revelation 3, 7 through 13. If you're joining us here in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you will see the passage on your screen at home. The wonders of modern technology. Amen. Okay, Revelation 3, 17, or 7. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. They will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon, hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, uh, you are truly glorious. We thank you, God, that you are always with your people. And Jesus, you are here right in the midst. We know that because your word says it. We know it because your spirit testifies to it. We know it, Lord God, because we hear your voice through the pages of scripture. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would speak to us now, that you would hide me truly behind your voice, behind your word, and that, Father, you would open everyone's hearts here wide to receive whatever you have to say. Thank you so much. Be with those who are also online. Be with the children. Uh, Be with all of us here. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, as you know by now, we are still in the seven letters of Jesus to the churches in Revelation. And last week, we began looking at the sixth letter to the church at Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And the church of Philadelphia was an enduring church. So every single one of these churches, I try to give it a name or kind of a characteristic from the letter. And the church of Philadelphia was enduring. There was only one of the two churches that Jesus had nothing bad to say. So that's awesome. That even in the midst of churches going from bad to worse, with the land growing dark, with apostasy, false teaching, false teachers, there are still good churches, amen? There are still good churches. So Philadelphia was one. The other was Smyrna. But Philadelphia was the enduring church. And endurance is the ability to keep going under difficult circumstances. It's having stamina. It's the ability to hold up under the weight of hardships. I don't know why, but last year when the Olympics were happening, I really got into dead weightlifting. Not me personally, but just watching them while I'm eating Doritos. But it was like, wow, that is amazing what they're able to do, right? I mean, it's like they're lifting like a car over their heads. But that is a picture of endurance. So an enduring faith, based on that, is a faith that clings to Christ, will continue to follow Christ, not when things are good, not when the sun is shining, but when there's trials and temptations. That's when endurance really comes out. It's not when you're sitting on the couch eating Doritos. It's when you have that 500-pound weight over your head. That's when you see endurance. So that's when your faith endures in the face of temptations and trials. It's when you keep hold of God's word even when it costs you. 
Again, it needs to be costly. That's when endurance comes out. Jesus said to the Philadelphians, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And the context is clear. In the face of persecution, they're being severely persecuted. Verse 8. So that's enduring faith. And last week, we looked at how God will intentionally bring hardships and trials into our lives to produce endurance. Yes. I know that's not a popular message, but God will do that. This is the test of endurance. You don't have to take my word for it. James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Why would you rejoice when you're suffering? For you know that the testing of your faith, notice what James calls trials and suffering in your life, testing. The testing of your faith will produce endurance, steadfastness. So God will allow or directly bring hardship into our lives. Why? In order to bring endurance. This is the test of endurance. I mentioned Abraham last week. We won't go through that story again. But it's so clear. Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. What are we talking about? What kind of test? Immediately, the verse after that, God gave a command to Abraham that began to cause him to suffer. Abraham, I love you, and I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering. Of course, God never intended Abraham to go through with that, but that was a test. And it caused tremendous suffering. So this is a reality in your walk with God that you need to understand. God will test your faith. I think a lot of Christians, they kind of drift through their Christian lives and they never come to terms with this. That God periodically in your life is going to bring things to test you. He will test your faith. He will test my faith. And it will usually come in the form of hardship and suffering. So the next time you're suffering something, you don't have to say, why? I mean, it's okay to say that, but I'll answer why. One reason is because he's testing you. Why? To produce endurance. You know, it's kind of like the Olympic coach I mentioned last week. But a good and wise coach will do what? Put his athlete through rigorous training. Because the coach knows unless the athlete goes through that training, and what is that training, by the way? It's a form of controlled suffering under the wise guidance of the coach. But unless that athlete goes through that controlled suffering, that athlete will never have endurance. The coach knows that. And so it's like, get to work. Go into training. So it's the same for our faith. God knows unless our faith is tested through suffering, it won't endure. There is no endurance. And again, many Christians don't seem to understand this or have never come to terms with this in their walk with God. And so they struggle. You know, last week I said many Christians seem to have a mismatch of expectations with God. I'm just reviewing last week's sermon, so don't, you know, don't worry, calm down. You're like, he's preaching the same sermon. I'm just reviewing. <laughs> but they seem to have a mismatch in expectations. Well, what do I mean? Well, a lot of Christians that I get to talk to as, as a pastor, they have expectations from God, such as, God, take away my sufferings. I don't like them. God, give me more blessings. So basically, that's it. God, take away the bad stuff, the things I don't like. God, give me more of the good stuff, the things that I like. And that is the sum total of their Christian life. And will God bless your life? Absolutely, beyond what you can ask or imagine. But it's not what you think. It's oftentimes not what you think. Because here's what God expects of you. He expects you to become like his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what he's saying. Okay, I love you. And I want you to become like my son, Jesus Christ. I want you to have a faith that endures. And even if it means I need to bring suffering in your life to get you there, I will. 
That is God's expectation. So do you see that mismatch? It's a total mismatch. And so again, because of that, a lot of people I've talked to, even in my own life at times, we struggle. I don't understand you, God. Why, God? Why would you do this, God? I don't trust you, God. And sometimes I even hate you, God. And so we need to change our expectations completely. We need to have a more biblical understanding of what God is about in our lives. So more than anything, God wants us to become like his son, Jesus Christ. He wants our faith to endure like his sons. But why? Okay, why is this so important? Well, this is the last thing we looked at last week. But the reason why God cares about this so much is because the only faith that saves is the faith that endures. You need to understand this, please. The only faith that saves is the faith that endures. If a person does not endure in their faith, in other words, if they give up believing in Jesus Christ, doesn't matter what kind of a start you had. Okay, everything was set up for you to be this amazing Christian, and yet if you leave the faith, if you give up trusting in Christ and following Christ, then the Bible says very clearly that person is not saved. So we are saved by grace through faith, yes. Okay, we never earn our way into heaven. It is by faith. But again, the Bible is clear. The faith that saves endures. It must endure because saving faith, the fruit of saving faith is endurance. The very fact that you have saving faith will cause you to endure. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's so blunt. He's so direct. That's why I like Jesus. Okay, he's not confusing at all. And so going back to that Olympic athlete, how do you know what is in that athlete if he's a sprinter, let's say? Okay, what, what reveals what is truly within that athlete? Again, I mentioned this last week. Is it the starting line? No. Because at the starting line, everyone looks amazing. Everyone looks like they're going to do an amazing job. But what reveals it? The finish line. Okay, that reveals what the runner is really made of, what is really inside. So again, Jesus said, the one who endures to the end, the one who finishes the, the, uh, crosses the finish line, that person will be saved. So this is how God is working in our lives. We are saved by grace through faith. And yes, that faith is a free gift. But the moment you receive it, it will endure. It must endure. Okay, that is saving faith. So this is what we've talked about uh, so far. And a lot about us, the focus has been on us. It's been on us holding on to God. I've talked a lot about you having to endure in your faith. I've talked about, yes, God will test your faith, but you must endure. So I've really pressed hard on that. You must cross that finish line. I've emphasized that. And so all of that is true. Okay, that is the story of our Christian life. And yet, that's not the whole story. That's not even the critical part of the story. So there's an entire second half to this that we're going to look at today. And if it's all right with you, I want to give you a different picture of endurance. So far, I've used a race to illustrate this. But here's a totally different picture but imagine being a child. Some of you don't have to imagine because you are a child. <laughs> but if you're an adult, imagine being a child. And imagine you're walking behind your father or a father figure in your life. And imagine you're on this trail and you're kind of going high and higher, higher up on the mountain. And you're walking behind the father. And then because you're not paying attention, you suddenly drift closer and closer to the edge. And then you slip. And you're on this high trail with this steep ravine, and the moment you're slipping, you're about to fall to your death, 
your father rushes over and grabs your hand. So now imagine this. You are dangling. You're just a child, and you're dangling off of this ravine, or this cliff, I should say, into the ravine, and your father is holding your hand. So this is a totally different picture, right? And immediately, as your father grabs your hand, what do you do? You grab his hand. So it's just an instinct. The moment he grabs your hand, you grab his hand. And so there you are, hand in hand. And so you're saved for now. But here's the question. But whose hand is important for you to remain saved? How do you remain saved? You're saved for now, but how are you going to stay saved? So which hand is important? Is it your hand or is it God's hand? Which hand is important? Now some of you, or maybe most of you, would say, well, God's hand is important. Yes, his hand is important. But both hands are important, right? Both hands are important. Your hand is important too. And that's what we've been talking about so far. Okay, your hand is important. You need a hand because he's holding on to your hand. And so you must endure in your faith. You must cross the finish line. Because only the one who endures to the end will be saved. So that's what we've been focused on. The focus has been all on your hand. You better hold on, right? You better cross that finish line. And yes, that is very important. But here's the question. But who has the more critical hand? Whose hand is more critical for you to remain saved? It's the Father's hand. Okay, we know that. Because you're a little child. And even if, as a child, you were to let go because you're getting tired, you're weak, as long as the Father is still holding you tightly, you are saved. You remain saved. And so the Father's hand in that second picture is what this entire second point is about in this letter to Philadelphia. But Jesus, after talking about the test of endurance, he starts talking about the source of endurance. And in this letter to the Philadelphian church, he makes it very clear. The source of endurance is who? It's not you, Philadelphians. It's me. It's me. So now the picture is shifting from all about your hand to now I want you to focus on my hand because this is the more critical piece. So Jesus says in Revelation 3, 8 and 9, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. And I said this last week, but what do you notice? Three times Jesus said, behold, behold, behold. What does that mean? He's basically just saying, look, pay attention. Don't miss this. And what does he want us to not miss? Three times Jesus is pointing to his own hand. That's what he's doing. Do you see, Philadelphians? You're being persecuted. Some of you guys are even doubting. But you're enduring. But in your endurance, and some of you guys are doubting, can we keep going? Can we keep enduring? Look at my hand. He's pointing to his hand. My hand is what will enable you to endure. Okay, this is why Jesus says, behold, pay attention. He said, look, my hand has opened wide a door for you Philadelphians. And what is this open door? Well, I believe it's referring to the entrance to God's kingdom. Some people say, well, this is the door to evangelism. I don't think so. The reason why is because earlier in verse 7, Jesus said, I have the keys of David. And when I open a door, nobody will shut it. And when I shut a door, nobody will open it. I have the keys of David. And David was the king in the Old Testament over God's kingdom. 
So this door is probably referring to the door to God's eternal kingdom. Jesus is saying, I have the keys of David to my eternal kingdom. I've opened it to you and nobody will shut it. This is what he's saying. Look at my hand. And so this meant a lot to them because they were probably excommunicated, the Jews in the Philadelphian church. They were kicked out of the synagogue, the synagogue of Satan. They weren't even really Jews. But they were kicked out of the synagogue. And yet Jesus said, don't worry about that. I know you've suffered a lot but I've opened a different door to my kingdom that nobody will close. So he was assuring them of their salvation. But not only that, Jesus was saying the persecution that some of you guys are stumbling over because they were being severely persecuted. Again, right? God tests us with trials and suffering. And, and I'm not a doomsday prophet or anything, but that day is coming, brothers and sisters. So might as well just pay attention in church because that day is coming for you and for me. You will be tested. You will face hardships. And so the Philadelphians were facing persecution here. They were facing hardships here. And because of that, they were doubting. And this is what Jesus said. Look at my hand. Again, same thing. Look at my hand. Look at what I'm doing. Behold, I'm in total control of your persecution. He says, I'm going to make the Jews who are not really Jews, but they are a synagogue of Satan. I will make them know that you are my people and they are not my people. I'm going to make them know that I love you. I don't love them. I love you. So Jesus, again, was reassuring them that the greatest challenge that they were facing as a church, the thing that was causing them to doubt, can we make it? I don't know. I mean, is it even worth following God? And Jesus said, look at my hand. I'm in total control of this persecution. So what does all of this mean? The Philadelphian church's endurance ultimately came from God. Okay, that's the point. Okay, what's the source of their endurance? It's God. It's God. The much bigger hand of God was holding them as they dangled over the ravine. Okay, that's the picture. And that's the critical part. His hand was the critical hand that was enabling them to endure. And the same is true for us. The critical hand holding on to you and causing you to endure, if you're a true believer, is not your own hand. Yes, I know I really hammered that last week. You better hold on. You better cross the finish line. Okay, I preached a whole sermon on that. So yes, your hand is important, but here's the bigger part. Jesus said, look at my hand. I'm holding on to you. And that's the only reason you're going to endure ultimately. You know, last week I shared about a college student who came to me asking me, how do I know I'm saved, Roy? And the reason why she asked me that with a lot of urgency is because she, made a, she met a guy, a non-Christian guy. She left the church soon after that, and she stopped walking with God. She disappeared for a couple years. And then suddenly, I don't know what happened, but she came back to our church uh, for a visit, and that's when she asked me that. You know, I'm really not with the Lord right now, but how do you know if you're saved? And I, didn't, I don't even remember what I told her, but now, looking back, this is one answer I could have given her, is you know that you're saved if your faith endures. Okay, I could have pointed to her hand, right? Are you holding on to Jesus? Okay, are you, are, you're dangling over this ravine. Are you really holding on to him? If you are, you know you're saved. But you know what? If I ended it there, that's not the whole picture. Because what's the other side, the more important side? I could have told this young lady, do you see God's hand holding on to you? Right? That's the rest of the picture. How do you know you're saved? Are you holding on to Christ? And then do you see God's hand holding on to you? That would have been the full answer. And so this is the critical part. How do you know if you're saved? Maybe you're asking the same question as this young lady. Maybe you're really not walking with the Lord. Maybe this is your last day at church. You're like, you know, I'm kind of done with this. 
I'm going to just say goodbye after this day. And I've had people do that. They come up to me after serving. They go, this is my last day at church. Oh, okay. Are you going somewhere else? No, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I've literally had those conversations. If this is you, then how do you know you're still saved? How do you know? Again, look at your hand and then look at God's hand. Look at God's hand. So if you're doubting your salvation, okay, maybe yes, in the past you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Okay, changes started happening in your life, but now fast forward many years, your life looks different. Okay, it's not the same as when you first got saved. Maybe you've gone back to some of your old habits, your old sinful habits, and these sins never seem to go away, and maybe you don't even want them to go away anymore. You stop caring. And because of all of this, you don't really sense God in your life anymore. And again, you're coming to church maybe only because of guilt. Again, maybe this is your last day. I don't know. Maybe you're going to stop coming soon. And so because of all of this, maybe you're sitting here already feeling like I've let go of God. Well, I encourage you today, if this is you, and maybe you're heading in that direction, look up at God's hand. Look up at God's hand. But even with that, some of you guys might be thinking, yeah, but okay, I see God's hand. I see what you're saying, but how do I know he's going to continue to hold on to me. I mean, look at the way I'm living. Okay, look, at, look at the things that I'm doing in my life. How do I know God will continue to hold on to me? You know, I'm sure if Peter might have felt that way after he denied his Lord three times publicly with cursing. He's a very well-known story. But on the night Jesus was arrested, somebody called him a Christian, basically. And this is what Peter said. I'm not a bleeping Christian. Don't bleeping call me that anymore. Bleep you. Right? He cursed. Like, bleep you. Right? I'm not a Christian anymore. Or, or a Christian at all. And is someone like that saved? I don't know. If you heard somebody, your roommate saying that to you or a family member, would you leave that going, oh, yeah, you're a Christian? <laughs> I was like, okay, I won't call you a Christian. So in that picture, it looks like Peter had let go of God. So can he still trust in that situation that God won't let go of him? Do you understand? Do you, do, you, do you understand the tension here? A lot of people are in this place. And most of us have not even gone as far as Peter in rejecting Jesus. Have you, gone, have you done that? Have you, like, cursed someone out for calling you a Christian? Have you done that? Bleep you? Don't call me that? Probably not. And yet, we struggle with the same doubts. So if you're dangling over that cliff and you're looking at God's hand, how do you know he won't let you go? Is it just brute faith? Oh, I just believe it. How do you know? How do you know God will not let me go and then I won't be saved? Because look at the way I'm living my life. Well, I'm here to encourage you, brothers and sisters. The Bible gives clear several reasons why we can know God will never let us go if we are truly his children, regardless of where we're at. Regardless of what we're saying about ourselves, what we're doing, how we're living our lives, there are clear, many, several reasons why we can trust God will never let us go. Okay, you're dangling over that cliff, but he will not let you go. So you can write these down or you could just listen. Number one, God's promises. God has made clear promises. There are many direct promises from God that he will cause the believer to endure to the very end, no matter how much he has drifted or backslidden. God will cause you to endure. John 10, 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. This is talking about salvation. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I will never let them go. That's why no one can snatch them out. 
I will never let them go. So there's the answer right there, right off the bat. You're dangling over a cliff. You're doubting your salvation. Will God let me go? Jesus says, I will never let you go. No one will snatch you out of my hand. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this. Paul says, you, Philippian church, be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So here Paul is saying believers can be confident. You can be confident of your salvation no matter all the ups and downs, no matter what you go through, no matter where you're at at this time. You can be confident. And even if you're not confident at this time, a believer is still saved. Because confidence, another word for that is assurance. Assurance of your salvation is not a part of being saved. The reformers were very clear on this. They made it very clear. It's in the Westminster Confession. I think our children are going through that. But someone can be genuinely saved, persevering in their faith and doubt every single day, am I saved? They can doubt. They can have zero assurance even though they are truly saved, and that is a possibility. And why? Because the assurance of your salvation is not a necessary part of your salvation. What is? Repentance and faith in the gospel. That's it. That's how you're saved, not because you're assured and confident you're saved. That's just a fruit. So assurance is not a part of your salvation, and yet it's important. It comes as you grow in your knowledge of God's word, as you grow in obedience. This is how assurance grows, but it's not required for salvation. So you know what this means? You can sit here right now having all kinds of doubts. Am I even a believer? Again, look at my life. And you can have these doubts raging through your heart, and you could be saved. You can be saved. You are already saved. And that confidence can still be yours one day. And this is why Paul said to the whole church, a blanket statement, Philippians. Okay, he's saying it to everybody there. Be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay, here's a third promise. 1 Corinthians 1, 4, verse 8. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I, I get a little surprised by that because you know who he's talking to? He's talking about to Christians who have gone wild. Okay, the Corinthian church was wild. I mean, there was a man sleeping with his stepmom in that church, crazy abuse, division, all kinds of insanity. And he's like, hey, Corinthians, Christ will sustain you to the end, and you're going to be guiltless. Guiltless? Really? You're going to be blameless and guiltless. And notice, Paul is giving thanks ahead of time. He's saying, I already give thanks, not on that day when I finally see it happen. I'm already giving thanks to God, because he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's already thanking them that they are going to cross the finish line, and they will be blameless on that day. Why? Because Jesus will sustain you. Paul's saying, I know that. I thank him for that. So God has made these glorious promises that believers will endure. Again, I make, this, I make this point very clear, regardless of where you are right now. Okay, number two, God's new creation. This is the second reason why you can trust God will not let you go. 2 Peter 2, 21. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Talking about the gospel. So he's talking about this group of people who knew the gospel, but then they turned away, and Paul says it would have been better if they never knew it. Okay, because they're being judged. And then he says in verse 22, the, the next verse, what the true proverb says has happened to them. 
The dog returns to his own vomit, and the pig, the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mud. So here Peter is talking about people who knew the gospel at one point. Maybe they were even within the church. And yet, because of the craving they have for the world, they turn their back on God, and then they begin to spread lies about God. So these were false prophets. That's what Peter says. And so now God was judging them for it. And so these are not safe people. And then Peter uses a very interesting proverb to describe them. Okay, well, what does he mean by this? The dog returns to his own vomit. And the sow, the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mud. So what is Peter saying about these non-believers? Again, who at one time knew the gospel, they were sitting in church, just like many of you, all of you. Okay, what is Peter saying about these people? Well, he said, they are like dogs who vomit. And that's a good thing. Okay, don't miss this. That's a good thing. To have contaminated food inside of you. You know, I have a brother-in-law and a sister-in-law who have a beautiful dog. And the dog went through a lot of hard things because it started eating stuff and throwing up. But it's a good thing to vomit that stuff out. And Paul says, or I'm sorry, Peter says, they were also like pigs who washed themselves clean of all the mud. And that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing to be muddy, but now you're all washed. But then what do you say? But they return to their vomit. They return to the mud. And here's the important point. Okay, why? Why did they go back? It's because even though they vomited out the contaminated food, that's a good thing. Even though they washed themselves clean of the mud, that's a good thing. They went back to it. Why? Because their nature never changed. A dog was a dog. A pig stayed a pig. And as long as the dog stayed a dog, it went back. As long as the pig stayed a pig, it went back. And that's the same with the non-believer. It doesn't matter what dress you put on them, where they're sitting, what kind of church attendance they have. If they have not changed in their nature, they will always go back. Okay, that's Peter's point. And yet, a genuine believer is totally different. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Your nature has changed. You went from a dog to a cat. You went from a pig to a giraffe. Whatever. But your nature has changed. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The believer has a new nature. Now it's sitting alongside their old nature. And that's why at times believers will look like their nature hasn't changed. Because their old nature is kicking in again. So even a believer, after they have vomited out the contaminants, they can go back to that vomit. You're talking about things in the world. After they've washed off all the mud through faith in Christ, they can go back to walling in that mud. Why? Because they have that old nature. And yet, what's the difference? The believer cannot stay there. The believer will not stay there. Why? Because their new nature will be like, oh, this is so inappropriate for me to be here. It is unfitting. It would be like a dog trying to live his entire life underwater. A dog cannot do that, maybe for a short period. It would be like a fish trying to live its entire life on the open field. They cannot do that. Maybe for a moment it will flap around. It cannot do that. Why? Because the nature has changed. Is that clear? So this is what the Bible is saying. If you are a new believer, your nature has changed and you can't go back. This is why you endure. This is why you endure. Number three, God's work. This is another reason why you can trust that God's hand will not let you go. God's work. Romans 8.28. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You know, Christians love to quote the first part of that passage. God works all things for the good, and he does. But oftentimes, Christians, they just kind of throw anything that they imagine, anything that they want in their life as the good that God is working, right? Whether it's a spouse, a new job, and those things are good. And God very well is working those things in your life. But you just can't interpret Scripture any way you want because Paul tells us what this good is. Yes, it can be anything. I'm not saying it can't. But Paul tells us what is this good that that God is working all things for in your life. It's his purpose, right? Right? He's working all things together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then the rest of the passage is telling us what that purpose is. This is what God is working in your life. What is it? What is his purpose? That we would be conformed to the image of his son. So what good is God working all the time in your life, taking the good things, the bad things, the hard things, the easy things, the joys, the sorrow? What is he working all the time to make you to be like his son, Jesus Christ? And so this is what he's working at all times in your life. And what's the final step of that? To bring us into heaven and glorify us. To make us like Christ in heaven, in full glory. So in other words, we will be like Jesus with him in heaven. That is the final step of this good work he's doing all the time. This is God's work. This is his work. And notice how Paul uses the past tense for these things. They haven't even happened yet to the Romans. These things haven't even happened yet, but he talks about it as if it's already happened. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. All past tense. In other words, Paul's saying it's as good as done. It's as good as done. If you're a true child of God, you will be glorified. Because God's working all things in your life for this glorious purpose to make you into like his son. And it's going to happen. Number four. Jesus' intercession. This is another reason why you can trust that God's hand will never let you go. Jesus is praying for us. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you know Jesus is always praying for you? He is constantly, without stop, ceasing, praying for you, even right now, his entire church. But why? Well, it says it right here. In order to save them to the uttermost. And other translations say to save them forever. I like that even better. To save them forever to the uttermost. And a clear example of this is Jesus' prayer for Peter. This is exactly what happened to Peter. Okay, I mentioned how Peter denied Jesus publicly with cursing earlier. But you know the rest of the story. I hope you do. But what happened? He got restored. He came back. He became the leader of the church, and then he actually gave up his life as a martyr, died upside down, nailed to a cross for Christ. So how did he come back to Christ? Well, it's because Jesus told told us, Luke 22, I prayed for you. I'm going to pray for you. Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, that's another name for Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fall. And when you have turned again, see, again, past tense. It's already going to happen, Peter. You're going to turn back. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I know that's going to happen. You're going to come back. Why? Because I've prayed for you. 
So Jesus already knew that Peter was going to deny Christ, that the enemy wanted to destroy his faith. Again, look back to that picture of the ravine. He knew Satan wanted to come and just drop him into that ravine. And yet Jesus said, that's not going to happen, Peter. Why? Because I prayed for you. I prayed for you. Now in contrast, Satan, in a very similar way, tempted Judas. So towards the end of the gospel, Peter and Judas are constantly being compared. You can learn a lot by looking at the two of them. But the same thing happened to Judas. He was being tempted by the enemy as well. It says, Satan attempted Judas to betray Jesus. And shortly after that, this is what Jesus said to Judas. He didn't say, I prayed for you. What did he say? He said, whatever you plan to do, Judas, do it quickly. Go do it. Do it. So why didn't he pray for Judas, but he prayed for Peter? Well, the only answer I can think of is because Judas didn't belong to Jesus. Judas, from the very beginning, was a non-believer. He was never a believer. He simply was not a believer. He did not belong to Jesus, and so Jesus had no obligation to pray for him. And so when Satan came and tempted Judas, he fell into the ravine. He was lost forever. And so Judas' fall from grace was permanent because he never had God's grace. See, that's the difference. That's the difference, brothers and sisters. Number five, God's power. Okay, God's power. Okay, this is another reason you can trust in God's hand. First Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, please don't miss that. Who, believers, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The believers, Peter says, are literally being protected and guarded by God's power. Why? So that they will be saved on the last day. God will bring it to pass. And we know immediately, uh, from the verses immediately before, this power is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that caused the new birth. And that power now is guarding you, is guarding me. If you're a true believer, you will be saved on the last day. Peter says, I guarantee it. And notice, Peter places no conditions on this. If you do this, then God will do this. No, Peter just says, God is guarding you, and he will save you on the last day. It's it's a simple promise to every believer. So do you see this? God's power. Okay, number six, the sixth reason why you can trust God's hand will not let you go. God's love. God's love. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Very important question. Maybe some of the people there were doubting God's love for them. Am I saved? I don't know. Does God still love me? Is his hand holding me? And then he spends the rest of this passage answering this question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he goes into the answer, no. That's the answer, no. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that clear? I think that's clear. Paul there is not giving an exhaustive list, but he's basically saying anything I can, I can imagine that could separate us from God can't. Even life or death or any power, any creative power. Nothing. And by the way, even yourself. Okay, please be clear on that. Even you can't separate yourself from Christ's love. That's Paul. He's including that. 
even yourself and what you do and how you backslidden and where you are right now, if you are a true believer, you are not separated from Christ's love. He will bring you back. He will bring you back. And if you never come back, bye-bye, you are never saved. And I say that in sadness. I don't, I don't, I don't take any joy in that. But you are never saved. But you will come back if you are a true believer. Why? Because nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. And so this is what we see in Scripture repeatedly with God's saints. Again, we saw that with Peter. Okay, I, I mean, again, he publicly, with cursing, betrayed Jesus Christ. I don't think any of us here have done that. Okay, curse somebody out for calling us a Christian. We've never done that, I don't think. Peter did, and yet he came back. Think about going further back. Think about David. Okay, the famous story of King David in the Old Testament who saw in a moment of lust a woman bathing somehow used his power to get her to be with him, got her pregnant, decided, uh-oh, got to cover this up. I, I'm going to kill her husband, and he did. And so this is, I mean, this is outrageous sin. It's not even just normal sin. This is outrageous sin. And yet what happened to David? He came back. He came back. He was restored. Again, I don't think any of us, any of us have done this. And God have mercy if you have, but I don't think any of us have done this. And yet God did not even let David go. Do do you see this picture? Is this starting to get clear here? And so I think this is the same conclusion for the Philadelphian church. I don't know exactly what was happening in that church, but maybe there were people doubting. We're being persecuted. Maybe I'm ready to throw in the towel. I'm done being a Christian. I don't want to follow Christ. And yet what did Jesus say? I have opened the door to my kingdom for you. And nobody will shut it, not even you. I I believe that's what he's saying. Not even you yourself will shut this door by what you're doing. It's open. It's forever open to you because you're my child. You're my believer, my follower. It's always open to you. You can't shut my door. Nobody can. In other words, you will endure. And you're going to enter my kingdom. So that's number six. Number seven, God's down payment. Okay, God's down payment. This is the final reason I can think of why you can trust God will not let you go. Ephesians 1.13. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here, Paul is borrowing all this language from the business world. This is business language. But what is Paul saying? Paul is saying when someone is saved through hearing and believing the gospel, in that moment, God does what? Deposits his spirit in them. The Holy Spirit comes in permanently, lives inside the believer. He is sealed in the believer, in fact. Think of like a peanut butter jar, just sealed tight. Nothing's coming out. The Holy Spirit has been sealed in the believer, but that's not all he says. He says, and this Holy Spirit in you is a guarantee. That's a business word. What is that talking about? Another word I think more familiar to us is down payment. He's a down payment. He's an earnest. He's earnest money. What's earnest money? What's down payment? Well, if you've ever bought a car, you know, but you go to the dealership, you kind of walk around, try to, you know, pretend like you're not there because you don't want people to (laughs) come and talk to you, but you're kind of scoping out cars, and you find the car you want. You know you want this. You know this is the good car for you. You can afford it. So then you do what? You go and you offer a down payment. And what is that telling the dealership? That's telling the dealership and the bank that I'm in. 
This is earnest money. I'm earnest. I'm sincere. Okay, I, I want this car. So here's my down payment, and that's a guarantee that I will pay the rest, right? I mean, that's how down payment works. This is a guarantee that I'm all in. I will pay the rest for the car. Okay, I, I will do it. And we know, of course, as human beings, okay, we try to keep our word. We try to, you know, pay the rest, but sometimes it doesn't happen, right? We know that as human beings. Maybe we change our minds. We don't want that car next week. So then we come and take the down payment back. Or other people, they might lose their job suddenly, and so you can't pay the rest. And so we know that can happen for human beings, but that's never true for God. Because God knows exactly what he wants, you. If you're his child, he wants you, and he never changes his mind. He doesn't come back the next week, oh, I don't want you, I want somebody else. He never changes his mind. And he has every resource in heaven and on earth to pay for you. He's already paid for you. But he has every resource to pay the rest and bring you home. Does that make sense? This is why this is another evidence of why God will never let us go. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit and he is a down payment and God will always pay the rest. In fact, he's already done it. So these are seven reasons why you can trust that God will never let you go if you truly belong to him. Once you're a true child of God, doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing. Now, I've spent this entire time focusing on God's hand, but don't forget, your hand matters too. Your hand matters too. If you come to me and you're living like a, a son of hell, I'd be like, you need to really change that and repent and come back to God. Because until you do, you don't have the assurance, right? But I say that fully knowing you could still be saved. Because yes, your hand matters, but it's God's hand that matters even more. And so regardless of what you've done, how you feel at this moment, if you are a true child of God, if you have left God even, and you're about to even leave the church, you will come back, you will endure. And if you never do, you are never saved. You know, R.C. Sproul, who passed away, God bless his heart, but he used to say it like this, if you have it, talking about eternal salvation in Christ, if you have it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. It's very simple. If you lose it, you never had it. But if you have it, truly, you can't lose it. And isn't this exactly what John said, 1 John 2.19? He said, they went out from us, talking about people who rejected Christ and left, because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain to all that they are not of us. Is that clear? So if you fully and finally reject Christ, and again, until the very last day of your life, we can't, we, we can't know. But if you stay in that state and then you pass away, you are not saved. But if you're a true believer, you will come back. I don't care what you're doing right now. You will endure and come back. So we're going to wrap this up soon, but what's the application then? So does it matter? For your salvation, does it matter that you cross the finish line and that you endure and finish the race? Does that matter that you actually persevere? Absolutely that matters. Right? Your hand. But if you were to fall off the track and now you're like, I don't even want to run this race, right? I don't even care about this race. And you're just laying on the ground. It doesn't matter that God will still hold on to you. Can you still believe that? Absolutely you can believe that. It's both. It's both. So then based on that, what's the application? Okay, let me just give you two quick ones. Okay, first, don't make any final judgments. Don't make any final judgments on you, yourself, or anyone else around you. You don't know. 
And I remember hearing the story, I think it was uh, John Wesley, but he had a friend who he had prayed for to be a Christian for many, many years. And he never repented and came to faith. And then one day he was riding his carriage, this is a long time ago, and then he hit a rock and this friend flew off the horse and hit his head and went into a coma and Wesley thought he was gone. He's like, oh my gosh, my friend is in hell. He's lost eternally because he never came to faith. And so he, there he is mourning, but then a few days later, not sure what happened, I don't remember, maybe he prayed fervently and got answered, but the friend woke up from the coma, and you know what the friend said? This is on record, I think Wesley. I hope it's Wesley. It could have been Jonathan Edwards. Actually, I don't know. <laughs> Edwards or Wesley, one of them. But, but they wrote it down in their journal and basically said, my friend, when he woke up, the first thing he said is, oh my gosh, I'm a Christian. I came to faith in Jesus Christ because as I was sailing through the air, in that split second, I remember the things that you have been telling me all, all this time, and I just gave my heart to God, and then I hit the ground. And then he went, and then he blacked out. And then while he was blacked out, I think he might have been communing with Christ or something had happened, and then he woke up as a believer. So what I'm saying is, you don't know. You don't know. You can't make any final judgments. You know, recently there was, I think a couple years ago, a very well-known pastor, a pastor that I respected. He's written many books. You would know him immediately if I told you his name, uh, most of you. But he basically came out and said, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm not a pastor anymore, and I'm not a Christian anymore. And now he's showing up and supporting LGBTQ parades and showing up in those kind of places. And a lot of people have written him off, but I say, don't be, don't be too fast. Right? I still believe and I hope that if he's a true believer, he's coming back. The day of his return is drawing near. He'll come back. Because that's what I see in scripture. He will come back. And if he never does, he was not a believer. As shocking as that seems. He was a good pastor. But he was a non-Christian, pastoring a church. But if he is a believer, he will come back. So don't make any final judgments. And then number two, second application, make your salvation sure. Okay, make it sure. And here's why I say this. It's because even though I went through seven different reasons why God does not let you go, those are objective realities. That doesn't mean you have a subjective experience of that. Again, you could be completely saved. God is holding you in his firm grip, and you are doubting every day. Am I saved? Am I saved? You're doubting every single day. And God's like, I, I have you. No one's going to snatch you out of my hand. But you don't have the subjective experience of that. And that's why I believe the Bible repeatedly says, make sure of your salvation. Make your salvation sure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what does that mean? That means if you are not sure of your salvation, but you think you might be saved, but you're not sure, then begin to follow the words of Christ. Hold to the word of Christ. Begin to obey. And obedience is one of the quickest ways for you to get assurance. That's how you get assurance. Even if you're not sure and, and you're thinking, oh, gosh, I don't know, just open up this book and begin to do the things that Christ says. And then you'll quickly know whether you're truly saved or not. So Peter, in 2 Peter 1.10, says that. He's like, make your salvation sure. It's because he's saying you already have objective salvation, but I want you to know subjectively that you're saved. Okay, you need to have both. Because that subjective understanding, that assurance, also can propel you in your faith. If you're, if you're constantly just doubting and doubting and doubting, then you're going to be blocked. You're going to be stunted in your growth. So Peter's saying, don't do that. Okay, you're, you're for sure saved. Trust me, you're saved. You've repented and come to faith in Christ. But you're doubting right now? 
can make your salvation sure. Subjectively know that too. That will propel you. So those are the two applications. And then just in closing, I'm just going to mention it. But if you endure and cross the finish line, if you hope in God's hand who's holding on to you to the very end, then you will have rewards. Revelation 3, 10 through 12. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Okay, this could be maybe the rapture. It could be something else. But there is a deliverance. And then he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That's an image of a race. You're going to finish the race. You will get a crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So we have no more time. We need to end. But I'm just going to say there are three rewards here. Deliverance, security, and identity. And this would have meant everything to the Philadelphians given what they were going through. But deliverance, security, and identity. Okay, these can also be yours if you finish the race. Amen? Okay, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for just your incredible promises, Lord. And I feel like I could have gone even further. I could have even brought out more examples of how you save us to the uttermost. That once you grab a hold of somebody through genuine repentance and faith in Christ, you will not let go of them, even if they let go of you. Even if they try to run away from you, you will not let go of them. We are eternally secure. And if we are able to run away from you and stay far away, then we were never saved. So Lord God, I pray that we would just understand the fullness, the full picture of endurance Father, help us to be radically focused and committed to finishing the race. We want to endure. We want to cross the finish line. But all the while knowing that the more important piece is, but Lord, you're holding on to me. Even if I utterly crash on this racetrack, you are holding on to me. And you will bring me across that line. So, Lord God, I pray that both would just rivet us and propel us to live for you. We thank you, Father. We will endure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's just come before the Lord. I know we just covered a ton of stuff. I realized how much stuff we were covering as we wrapped up. But, Lord, the Lord is good. But let's just come before the Lord. Uh,